So two weeks ago, I had just come from about four weeks on retreat and gave a talk called Things Are Not As They Appear and gave a number of practices uh, that I invited people to do in the two-week period. And I'll come back and review some of what we covered uh, two weeks ago. And since then, I've, done a, an, I've continued some retreat time, a semi-retreat at home for nine days, and then uh, just came back from a seven-day retreat two days ago. So still a little bit, uh, you know, my eyes still look at this, oh, look at this. Oh. So I'm a little bit like being in a different, uh, in a foreign country. Some of you know that experience. And so uh, what I want to do is to continue this time with that theme of uh, things are not as they appear. And my plan is to continue with that as well uh, the next two weeks or so and bring, that, bring out different aspects of that theme. I think most of us know that there is a pretty clear message in the teachings of the Buddha, as well as in many other uh, traditions, that we don't see things clearly. That, in fact, the essence of wisdom is to come out of a certain kind of ignorance or delusion. And it's typically not an ignorance about facts or about knowing this or that detail, but it's an ignorance about how we see and understand ourselves, and how we see and understand the, the world. And that's a very uh, continual theme. And so we know that, for example, the very name of the Buddha suggests that the central aspect of his being is that he has, to use the metaphor he gives, he has woken up. He is awake. And what does that say of him before his awakening? It says that in some sense he was asleep and by implication that we in many ways are asleep. We're not fully seeing things. And so it lends itself to metaphors of being dreaming, of being in something like an illusory uh, state of being, ways of perception. This is from the Buddha. Warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. Not seeing accurately is connected with suffering. And so the training is to see more clearly. And again, that's really how, how wisdom is understood. I brought in a image from the Tibetan tradition. This is, an, this is called the Wheel of Life. And some of you have seen this. And this shows uh, several things. It shows the, uh, on the outside here, it shows the 12 factors of what are called dependent origination, which was the teaching that the Buddha gave coming from the evening of his own awakening. And I'm not gonna go into this in detail, and maybe I'll leave this up here for you to look at, but this is actually, this is the whole of life, and it's being held by this demon-like creature who is called Yama, who is the uh, Lord of death, 
and who uh, presides over impermanence. So we'll come back to that. But the, the first factor in understanding the origins of suffering is ignorance. It's not seeing clearly in some way. And in many ways, that quality of ignorance is connected with a certain kind of anxiety and fear on the emotional level. In other words, sort of a basic anxiety about life and how do I do this and you know I'm vulnerable and so forth. And there, so this is like the uh, the core condition. When the Buddha came to his awakening, he actually wondered whether he should teach. He said, it actually isn't that complicated. And he wondered whether people would really listen to him. There's an old Zen story of a Zen monk who is coming down from the mountains and he meets someone who's going up in the mountains to meditate and he's carrying a large bag of his stuff on his, on his shoulders. And the, uh, the younger practitioner asks him, what have you learned in all these years? And he stays silent, but he drops his bag. <laughs> then he picks it up and continues walking without saying a word. Right? And so from one perspective, that's pointing to what? Letting go, right? And saying that actually it's simple, but um, not so simple, not so easy, not so easy to understand her to do. There's a um, there's a set of pointers, also from the Tibetan tradition, uh, attributed to uh, a teacher named Naguma, who is called the Woman of Illusion, because she teaches on the illusory nature of things, the ways that we don't see things accurately. And she's, these are four lines that she gives. She says that, the, that, uh, that wisdom and a way of seeing things fully uh, can be missed in four ways. And here are the four. It's so close, I couldn't recognize it. It's so simple, I couldn't believe it. It's so profound, I couldn't conceive of it. And the last one may be the most intense, so noble, I couldn't deserve it. Interesting. And many of you know some of the metaphors that are given in di different traditions about the world being dreamlike, our experience being dreamlike. Last time I, I read from Chuangsu about the uh, about Chuang Chu dreaming that he was, what, a butterfly? Then he woke up from the dream, but how could he be sure that he was not the butterfly dreaming that he was Chuang Chu? <laughs> right, and so um, from the Diamond Sutra, as a lamp, a cataract, a star in space, an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a dream, a cloud, a flash of lightning, view all created things like this. 
So the suggestion that we don't see things really as they are, and that we see through a lens. And last time I spoke some about how we may be predisposed by the way our brains and minds work to do that. That we, um, I, I mentioned last time the philosopher Kant uh, believed that we can actually not really know things as they are, but that we only know because our minds project onto the world a sense of things being solid, unitary, um, that cause and effect works in some clear way, that things last, that they, there's some degree of uh, permanence and so forth. And um, a more contemporary version of that comes from cognitive science where it's said that uh, we are continually um, thinking but that most of our thought is unconscious and based on the past and based on our conditioning. Cognitive scientists say that 98% of our thought is unconscious. And it's thinking all sorts of things that come through our culture, that come from past conditioning and so forth, that we, uh, that we structure our vision and our very perception through hundreds of metaphors, images, and models. Right? And that we actually don't really somehow see things as they are, but we see things as they are represented by our metaphors and models. Right? And I'll come back to that, and I'll try to make it uh, practical, so how we can actually uh, look, at, look at it. And we know, you know and anyone who has uh, helped raise a child, or raised a child, knows that children have to learn how to come to the concepts and categories of the culture. You know, and that, that they don't just somehow arrive with all the concepts right there, but they have to learn how to see the world in the culturally appropriate way. And of course we know different cultures do it differently. Right? It's said that the Eskimos have 40 words for snow. So do they see snow the same way we do? What's real? Right? If we have one word for snow and they have 40, what are they seeing? Right? What are we seeing? So we see to a large extent through our representations and our, and our concepts. And to a large extent, it's really uh, our language, and which is the way we, which really guides our thinking, is very directed by pragmatic concerns. Basically how to manipulate the world, and how to get around, how to do things. Very useful, but we, we often think that language tells us how things are. The philosopher Wittgenstein said that we are bewitched by language and that we actually don't see things clearly, but we see things through the lens of our language. Vision plays a very important role. And I, I was reminded of a, a study that actually shows how it is, uh, a very famous study, probably some of you know this, or, or read it in school, there was a famous study called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. Does anyone do come across that in your studies? Say that again, please. What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. 
This was one of the first studies in cognitive science. And essentially, for a long time, uh, people studying other species made an assumption that there was information that went to the eye and that information was simply transmitted to the brain and the brain decides what to do and so forth. And many of us still have that kind of naive view about how the eyes and the brain work, right? But what they actually found when they studied the frog is that that's not the case. Basically, they were able somehow to study the pathways between the eye and the brain and watch what was incoming to the eye and then watch what was passed on in the, uh, what signals were passed on to the brain. Essentially what they found is that frogs see four things. And they're not surprising. One of them is something like uh, small dark objects moving very quickly. <laughs> right? Uh, the, they, the, the scientist who did the study called this the bug detector, right? That's one of the things they see, right? That's what their brain is actually seeing, something. And another one is a large dark shape moving across the field, right? That would be the danger sign, right? Be like, when that happens, get the hell out of here. Yeah. Right, shoot. That wasn't in the study. But, um, you know, and, there, and so... There were, we do something similar, right? We don't exactly see, we may have more than four, but we really see through our concepts and representations. And presumably all species do some version of that. And the representations match up to a certain extent, but to a certain extent, not at all. Frogs and humans, very different, right? And, you know, we, to the frog, we go into one category. <laughs> we are not seen with a lot of nuance. We are in the big shape, you know, casting shadows or whatever. And so, and so the human brain is more sophisticated, but in some ways not so different than that. And so this is part of the background information for then looking at this question of how do we see clearly? And how do we see in a way that's not so clear? And last time I mentioned uh, four ways that we don't see clearly, or four ways that things are not as they appear. And I'm going to, and for each of these, I'm giving practices that we can explore at home. And how many of you did some practice in the last two weeks to, to explore this? So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come back and I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll hear from you. So the four that I gave last time, the first one was we see our experience through the lens of the personal self. And I'm starting with the ones that are easiest to understand and easiest to find in our own experience. And um, I'm going to add a, a fifth that I didn't give last time, partly in relation, I was a little bit inspired by uh, knowing the theme, uh, you know, the theme of the day in the schools being the response to gun violence. And I wanted to add a, a fifth theme, which is parallel to the first one. first one is that we see through the lens of the personal self. We also, secondly, see through the lens of the social or cultural 
or collective uh, lenses, we might say. Right? Not surprising, not something that most of us know. We see through we see through our social conditioning, in other words, and we see through the prevailing models, some of which come with the original conditioning, some of which are maybe we go to by inclination or choice, such as our political inclination, we'll see the world in a certain way. A third is that we see permanence and solidity where there's actually impermanence and a lack of solidity. The fourth is that we see distinct, separate, individual things and beings where there actually are not radically separate things and beings, but rather interdependence. And the last is, we see a separation between ourselves and everything else, other selves and objects, where ultimately there's not a separation. So these are our tendencies. They come with our conditioning. And in these weeks, I'm going to cover all of them and give practices. And last time I gave some practices. So I'm going to go back briefly through the, the first one, because we, we looked at that last time. But it's helpful to cover it, because not everyone was here last time. So the first is we see things we experience through the lens of the personal self. Right? And this, this, to some extent, uh, can lead us to see things in a way that's distorted. Right? And we, look, we looked at that. And I mentioned the uh, well-known quotation attributed uh, probably incorrectly and very loosely to the Talmud, which says, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. <laughs> right? And we, the uh, invitation last time uh, as a practice was to look for that in our, in our everyday lives. How do, we, how do we do that? And I, you know, I mentioned a number of examples and, and we gave, uh, people in the group gave a number of examples. So some of them, you know, some easy examples would be if I'm very, uh, what, self-critical or self-judgmental, I'm going to pick up especially on things which um, are critical of myself. And I gave some examples last time of how, and I think we know this, if I'm feeling in a you know, self-critical mood, you know, people can say uh, nice things to me and I don't hear them. And I'll hear the one person who says something critical. We had that story, I think, from two weeks ago of was the person here who told it of, of telling, of giving a talk and most people liked it but this person got really hooked in on the one person who kind of gave negative feedback about the talk, right? Was that, was that you who did that, said that? No. And, and then the person added a, like a addendum to the story, which was that a year later, the person came back and said, I really so much like your story. Can you give me a recording? I have to give a talk and I really want to hear it, right? And so um, we, we see things uh, based on our fears, based on our wants, based on what we like. I remember one example from my own experience uh, was, you know, going, I remember, you know, we'd come from Spirit Rock back to Berkeley and would go on the connector between um, San Rafael and the San Rafael-Richmond Bridge 
And at that time, there was a lot of construction, so it was very slow. And I remember, um, remember thinking, uh, you know, everyone was in the two lanes, more or less, stop and go. And then I saw a car go by in the breakdown lane. And, you know, my immediate reaction perception was so selfish. Right? So it's the judgmental perspective from the other side, right? So selfish, right? And, you know, and then I, I didn't stop there. My mind started proliferating, <laughs> right? And, and, and was saying, you know, just, oh yes, there's just an increase in selfishness in the world. And I kind of went off on a three or four minute riff, you might say, right? Anyone else do that? Occasionally, right? right? And so that's very familiar. And then, but it's an interesting story because a few minutes later, uh, I came to, uh, I came past the same car which was stopped helping out someone else who had broken down. So it was actually the complete opposite of my own perception, right? It was actually not selfish at all, but helping, right? And so these are very common, right? And that's why I, I wanted to start with this first aspect of, of not seeing things as they appear, uh, which is that we see th- things through the lens of our wants, our likes, uh, our, um, our, our wounds, our projections, everything, right? So pretty familiar. Let me ask maybe just for a few examples, particularly people who might have looked at it in the last two weeks. And we'll use the microphone for this, so wait till you get the microphone. Anyone uh, like to give an example? Maybe something you found in the last two weeks? I think it's also fine for anyone for whom an example comes right to mind. Anyone like to share? Elizabeth, so wait for the microphone. Well, this is just a quote, and I don't remember who it was who said it, but it was, uh, if I didn't believe it, I never would have seen it. Yeah, if I didn't believe it, I never would have seen it. So again, getting back to that way that we project on. Anyone want to give a real-life example? Um, that Something like this. Most of them are actually not particularly dramatic or meaningful or profound. They're, it's very ordinary, isn't it? the way we do that. Like my example with the uh, person driving in the breakdown lane. Anyone have an example come to mind? Please, Elizabeth. Um, I was driving with a friend and we were heading out to Mendocino and um, there was a car behind her honking. Yeah. And she was very annoyed that this car was being very annoying. And um, she didn't realize that she had um, was burning oil. Her, right. And then the car was trying to let her know that um, that she needed to get some mechanical help. <laughs> right. That uh, she was interpreting this as hassle, nuisance, pain in the ass person um, through her aversion. Right. And again, we. This is something that's happening a lot of the time, right? And so that's something that in meditation we can explore this. Maybe one more example? Anyone else want to give an example? Um, Dan, please. Thank you. Uh, I was on a retreat. Hold it up to you. Oh, yeah. I was on a retreat last week also, and uh, uh, I came outside from the sitting, and uh, so it's wide open 
spacious feeling that I had, wide open spacious feeling that I had. And, you know, I wasn't feeling much of me. And uh, uh, we received an instruction during, uh, during the sitting. So I come outside and I'm standing next to a friend and he says, look, you can see the palaces and the trees, the glass palaces, and, you know, all made of vibration and light. And for a moment I saw them, right? It was just beautiful, right? And then this huge, like, sense of, uh, wow, you saw the palaces, <laughs> okay? And it is <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, this is in reference to a teaching where at uh, certain high levels of development, one actually starts to see the world as sacred in a certain way and actually can see something like palaces uh, there. And this was in relationship to what comparing yourself. Right, and, and uh, yeah, thank you. So in some ways, what then, just going off in reaction? Right. Direction back to itself. Yeah, yeah, like just moving from that open stance to just and irritation and so forth, and not in, some, in a sense not being able really to listen to that person anymore, whatever that person was saying out of irritation. So again, very every day, right? So please, maybe the last one. A little closer to your mouth? Um, romanticize it a little bit the way you might romanticize a person that you just started dating. Um, and I realized, you know, we have these beautiful mornings, they're soft and nice to the trees. And I was looking out from my living room at some of the beautiful mist. Um, and, I, and I realized, why is there always mist coming from that same spot? And then it occurred to me that there was just a house I couldn't see. Yeah. It was burning smoke. <laughs> so I have this permanent, beautiful, misty view. Oh. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That's a wonderful example of, and we probably, probably for some of us, that might remind us of other things. Ah, oh, the beautiful mist. I'm so glad I came here. Right? When in actuality, it's what? dirty smoke. Right? So, wonderful, wonderful example. Um, so this is happening a lot, and what is our, in our practice, we really want to study these. We want to study how we do this, get familiar with our own patterns. Along with that, it's really important with all of these ways that we, that we might be exploring that how things don't appear as they, they are. We want to really hold it with some care, compassion, give ourselves slack, right? That, this isn't about seeing all this to be hard on ourselves, but it's actually seeing ourselves, uh, seeing what's there. And so generally in meditation, it's very helpful when we're seeing things that are a little bit hard or potentially disconcerting or even a little disorienting, because when we look carefully at that, we'll see that a lot. Like when I teach courses on the judgmental mind, I have to tell people, uh, when you're doing this, also hang out a lot of the time with beautiful states. You know, hang out with loving kindness, be with beauty a lot. Because sometimes when we're looking at how we, in this case, maybe distort things or how our likes and dislikes affect our perception, 
can get, can get a little bit discouraging, right? You can, we can get judgmental towards ourselves. Oh, I'm just, I'm just a reaction machine. You know, why should I even meditate? Right? And it's, um, it can happen. So with all these practices, it's helpful to combine them really with two things. One is spending time with beautiful and positive states. This could just be you know, being with mindfulness where we're opening and where the mind's more quiet, or it could be uh, being with loving kindness, being with heart qualities. It could be, be just being with beauty, whether through being with the trees, the forest, the mountains, the ocean, or with mu- music, art, whatever. That if you're looking carefully at something that for you has aspects of being difficult, it's really important to, to bring in the attention to something that's more uplifting at the same time, over, you know, especially if you're doing it over time. I found that, I found that really, really clearly with exploring the judgmental mind, which is, for most people that I've worked with, it's at least a six-month or 12-month process, right? So you really need to keep looking at that, which is mostly hard. You need to combine it with looking into beauty and also with compassion. You know, like this, okay, this is an aspect of how we are, but can I have some compassion for how I'm not seeing things clearly, right? And not just think, oh, I'm whatever, I'm this or that. We can also know that it's possible with our practice to, as we study the ways that we react for, because of likes, dislikes, ideas, images, that as we practice more and see that more clearly, it can be reduced. That we can actually come to see more and more free of reactivity and free of the personal lens. That we can, and again, most of us who've done retreats have had glimpses of that. That we know that we can actually be with things um, in a different way and actually see things more fully without so many concepts and sometimes with no concepts at all. So we're just actually being with the phenomena. Remember the first uh, insight meditation retreat that I ever did, I was a student. At the time, I was interested in the literature on altered states for different reasons. <laughs> and, and I was um, you know, really interested in, that, in the books on altered states. And after my first retreat, I, was really, I, had that, I had those glimpses of perceiving without conceptualization, of perceiving the world without the lens of conceptualization, which I think we do at times. I think we do that maybe when we're really connected to the earth or to the forest or the ocean. Maybe we see in a way that's not really conceptualizing much. I think that happens also sometimes with very close human connections. When we're, when we're deeply in our hearts, there often the conceptualization drops down, at least for a while. And so in that retreat, I was experiencing that a lot. And my slogan coming out of the retreat was, civilization is an altered state. <laughs> Meaning that it was in some ways a part, it was that our usual way of seeing was through the lens of concepts. And that there was a way of seeing the world that, was, that minimized or even sometimes went beyond conceptualization. It was also a very beautiful way to, to be with things. Right? And so our practice 
can help us to see this more and more and to um, um, increasingly uh, work through a lot of our conditioning that tends to make us reactive and to see things inaccurately. So it's possible, we can hold that possibility of not seeing so much through the personal lens. Yeah. Let me, can I come back in the, uh, when we have some discussion rather, rather than now? Yeah, were you wanting to ask a question? I just, something happened to me that was so exact to what you're saying. Yeah. Maybe you can talk about that in our discussion time. Yeah, great. So, um, so the practices would be to, in both your meditation and daily life, look carefully at how you do that. Take notes. Study it. Remember to do, if you're finding it getting, your, getting you a little bit down, do the practices. I think probably good to do these anyway. Do practices where you connect with beauty, with uh, uplifting states of mind and heart, and uh, also bring in compassion in some way, whatever way uh, you can do that. Sometimes it can come through loving kindness or compassion practice, or just saying something like this to oneself, you know, know, this is an aspect of being human. Gosh, I'm a little bit shocked I'm doing this so much, but everyone does this, and, you know, can I hold this with some compassion? And know that it's not the final story or it's not the last word on this, something like that. <clears throat> okay, um, I may just have time for the second one. I'll, I'll do with the others because I took a little more time with this first one. Um, so the second way that things are not as they appear is because of seeing things through the collective lens, seeing things through our social and cultural conditioning, often in a distorted way. And again, we kind of know this intellectually. Of course, we're going to see through our cultural lens, right? We certainly, when we are with people from other cultures, we can often notice that there is a seeing through a cultural lens. But as it is, we often don't see our own lens because to use, to mix the metaphor, uh, it's like the fish swimming in the ocean, right? You don't see the water, right? There's something like that. We don't see our own... Uh, way uh, of doing that. And I think last time I mentioned a little bit, without going into this theme so much, that this is very evident in political discourse, that each side will frame issues in a different way. Last time I mentioned, okay, the, the uh, people who are wanting or think that immigrants are problematic, they would use the word chain migration, whereas the other side would use the very term family, what, reunification, right? And that you know, one, one side would use the phrase uh, death tax, right? And what, what's the other one? Is it a state tax? I think, yeah. And so that we can see this very clearly um, in political language. Um, and I thought I'd bring in some of the, these ways that we see through the, the collective lens in relationship to what we did earlier, in relation to the theme of gun violence. Because it's, I think it's a, it's an issue where I think we can pretty easily see that we, how much we see through a collective lens. And in many ways, extremely inaccurately, we don't see certain things. So I thought I'd bring that out in terms of this theme of gun violence. Okay, so first a few facts. There are 310 million firearms in the United States. 
114 million handguns, 110 million rifles, 86 million shotguns. There are 1.5 million assault rifles, similar to the ones used at Sandy Hook and at the Portland School, 1.5 million in private hands. Okay. Um, the United States has the highest rate of gun ownership in the world. It's an average of 90 firearms for 100 people. Total, these are, these are um, as it were, just uh, empirical facts. Total gun deaths in the United States average 37,000 a year, with two-thirds of those actually being suicides. About 12,000 homicides, a thousand of those come from the police. Um, mass shootings that kill four or more people occur approximately one a day in the United States. Although they only kill, they only are connected with 2% of the gun killings. The number of people killed by guns is about the same number as who die on, in automobile accidents, uh, 37,000 a year. Generally, uh, when people look at this issue, uh, they don't look at history for the web of cause and effect. It, it goes into a very, uh, what, uh, ideological framework or model. And people don't look at or understand a lot of the background information. And I want to just mention two of those, which I think can, when you reflect, can bring out how we don't see this issue very clearly. Um, See, the, the, the two of them are first the history of the second, uh, secondly, the first is the number of guns in the society, and the second is the history of the Second Amendment. Those are the two points I'm going to bring out. And again, this is looking in some detail at, at how we don't, we see through the social collective condition lens. So, people in the U.S. make up 4.4% of the global population and have 42% of the world's guns. Uh, from 1966 to 2012, 32% of those who committed mass shootings were from the US. 31%, even though again, we're 4.4% of the population. Okay. Um, and this can be, uh, the co there's a pretty direct correlation when you look at countries around the world. This is actually very simple. There's a very direct correlation between number of guns in a society and the amount of violence. Pretty simple in a certain way. People have guns, they get in fights, they kill people. People who don't have guns, they get in fights, they don't kill people so much, much, much less. And so I, d I don't think that there are more fights in the United States. It's that when people fight or get angry, they have guns, right? And so um, a, few, a few other distinctions. Um, the only other country which has the same uh, 
rate of mass, kill, mass shootings is Yemen. Yemen, which has, not coincidentally, the second highest rate of gun ownership. And so you can see there's a, there's a correlation um, that the, the uh, number of homicides per uh, capita in the United States is 50 times greater than in Great Britain. In other words, one's likelihood of being, or the number of killings by guns in the US is 50 times greater per capita, not in an absolute way, than Great Britain, and about seven times greater than Canada. Right? And that those correlations, or, or I should say, those proportions are completely correlated with gun ownership. In other words, there are 50 times more guns in the US than Great Britain, 50 times more homicides, seven times more guns in the US than Canada, seven times more homicides. And when they've studied it, they find an almost complete correlation between number of guns and number of deaths. Again, not rocket science to say you get angry, you have access to guns, you use them. Or you get angry at yourself, again, suicide being the greatest one. So. Um, that's the first point I want to make, that, you know, that doesn't tell you why America has more guns, right? Doesn't, doesn't tell us that, but it tells us that the uh, amount of violence, when you look at it cross-culturally across all the societies in the world, complete correlation between number of guns and um, killings, right? These facts will typically not come up very much in the discussion. Okay. Second, second, second fact I want to point to, or second perspective, is about the origin of the Second Amendment, which for many people is very sacred. Right? And gun owners, very, very sacred, powerful, um, especially for many people who are actually uh, more marginalized in recent times. Right? It's, uh, when they did studies in Kentucky, I think, they found that people were concerned about a number of issues, but the only one they felt they could really have impact on was keeping their guns. Right? And so um, the Second Amendment was enacted in 1791. And I'm depending here on analysis by uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, who, who has a recent book on, on this. It's called Loaded. I think, uh, and um, 1791, this was the, the gun laws, uh, the, or I'm sorry, the Second Amendment was about having well-regulated militias in the US. That's the language, if you look at the Second Amendment. And militias had been around since the uh, early part of the 1600s. Um, do you know what the aim, main aim of the militias were? Yes, primarily, to um, uh, take the land of Native Americans and kill them. That was the primarily the role of the militias. Later, they got connected with slave patrols. So remember, 1791, slavery is still in place. And so the Second Amendment was in large part to make sure 
that uh, white, particularly white men, had guns so that they could um, basically control and kill and take the land of Native Americans and be available for slave patrols to guard against escaped slaves, particularly in the South. And the Second Amendment really makes that uh, idea of militias uh, into, into law. It was pretty much there in most of the states at the time. And so you had uh, laws that were pre-existing for um, the, in Massachusetts, uh, every man, uh, this meant white men, in the 1650s had to carry a, a gun all the time in public, right? And Virginia did the same thing that said you actually, all men had to have guns even when they were at church. And again, this was the, what was the danger? It wasn't really bears. It was primarily Native Americans and slaves, right? This is the origin of the Second Amendment, right? It's not about the individual freedom to bear firearms, but this isn't, this doesn't go into in the discussion, does it? So people, and this gets sort of misused, right? So people are looking through a certain lens at uh, firearms, and it's like a refuge for them to feel powerful. So also you have to ask the question, uh, why are there so many guns? What are people afraid of? Is it still in relation to the past, right? <clears throat> Where the reason was primarily Native Americans and um, African Americans who were enslaved, right? So you have to look at the, you know, so how much is that in the collective unconscious, right? Because something like 99% of the mass shooters are, are white men, right? So this can, this gives a little perspective that when we look at gun violence, we're not, we're looking through particular lenses and we don't see a lot of the reality, right? Does that make some sense? It's sort of sobering, isn't it? How much are these discussions gonna come up in, in public discussion? So how do we work with that? And you know, we could see, <clears throat> I think, see similar things when we look at uh, other forms of social conditioning. Probably many of us have done a lot of this when we look at social conditioning around gender or race or what, what else? Age maybe, you know, that we look at that conditioning and how do we, and we can see how we see through that lens, right? how we see through a certain lens and maybe how it distorts things. We don't really see the realities or the history. And so again, the practice would be to track your mind and observe others when, and see how do we, how do we see through those uh, collective lenses? How do we see things in a distorted way? You know? And again, some, a lot of this comes very, very early in our conditioning, you know. Hmm. So, so the next weeks I'll bring in further attention to um, the way that things are not as they appear in terms of impermanence, in terms of, this is, this is getting into more subtle realms. I meant these first two are ones that are pretty accessible. We can see this, you know. We can see how we see through a certain lens personally. We can see that collectively. And 
my invitation, I'll be back here, my intention to be here next week. Look at this, see what you find in your own experience. Look at the news to the extent that you follow that through these lenses. Notice how people are looking through filters. Some of them you may agree with, some of them not, and how they're in many cases ignoring major realities because it doesn't fit the, the lens or the model. So that's the invitation. Look both per personally and collectively, and then we'll come back to explore it. And you can, again, do this in meditation, do this just in the flow of daily life, take notes, see what you find. So I hope that last piece was helpful. I, I wanted to relate it to the, what was happening today, because it's part of the backdrop that makes it really clear that this isn't just about a few gun regulations. It's actually a very deep part of our social conditioning that uh, I wasn't fully aware of some of it until I studied it more. Let's just sit quietly for a moment, then we can open things up. <clears throat> So, so again, these are pointed out because they're, they're good places to start. They're accessible. We can find them in our experience. So um, let's, let's, I'll invite any reflections or questions. Do you want to share your experience to start? Let's wait for the mic. Okay. And then you'll, you'll be second. Over, over here, Elizabeth. Just, yes, I agree with you. I'm preparing to move. So just yesterday I had some help moving and I felt kind of bad as a good friend and he was carrying all the boxes and I was thinking, oh gee, this is a lot of work. So, um, you know, I was going to say something to him about it. I felt bad, but he went downstairs to eat something and I was doing something. I heard the swearing and carrying on down there. I thought, oh my God. He feels like he was taking advantage of about the boxes, and yeah. I jumped to all these conclusions about, yeah. uh oh, this is going to affect the whole friendship, the moving experience, the blah, blah, blah. So I thought to myself, well, you know, you do this regularly, you jump to your conclusions based on your history. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't do this. And it was a huge process. Finally, when I saw him again, I said, oh, you know, I was hoping, I heard you have a problem downstairs. I'm hoping yeah. it wasn't, we, we had no relationship. To ship to me. And he said, Oh, no, I dropped my lunch and I spilled it all over the floor and I had to clean it up. It was so annoying. It had nothing to do with it. So <laughs> I went through all of that. Right. Right. And so these are so common. Um, you know, one, one of the things about retreats is they're very nice is that you can see this because you build it up in your mind. One of the most clear examples is in what we call Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. The, the latter are where maybe you're sitting next to someone who's breathing loudly <laughs> and you build up this whole thing in your mind and, um, and don't get to talk to the person. The romances are even more like that. We call, there's a technical term we have called papancha, which means that, you know, it's usually translates conceptual proliferation, which means that if the mind just proliferates, makes a story, goes on for minutes, if not hours or days, and uh, it may be totally independent of reality. 
And so Vipassana romance, you find, you see someone, the person has a certain appearance or vibe and you, one uh, picks up on it, you know, imagines uh, after the retreat, yes, this is my Mr. or Ms. Wright, you know, and I'll, you know, yeah, here's what I'll say and here's what, you know, here's how it'll, the relationship will develop and some people actually go through very elaborate process where they imagine the relationship developing marriage and sometimes even divorce because it wouldn't really work out. <laughs> right. And so this is all, this all, this all can happen sometimes in like five minutes or ten minutes. Sometimes it goes on for days or weeks, right? So very interesting, so very similar. Um, please. Yeah. Well, I was listening to you. I was feeling really distressed about the creation of the Second Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> and extremely distressed that most Americans do not know the background of the creation yeah. of the Second Amendment. And when you think about it, the creation just smacks highly of racism. Right. Which, unfortunately, those on the far right tend to still have those tendencies. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, of a friend of ours who's a staunch public and military son, and his daughter, who lives in Colorado, who works for the oil companies, her boyfriend gave her a pistol for a birthday present. Mm. And it just made me reflect, why does Heidi need a pistol just to carry around in Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's, it's the ignorance um, that we have that prevails, and students should learn about this. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, yeah. And there also can, you know, we can see that there can be some compassion also for people who are in this web of not really knowing. Me? Yeah, no, uh, everyone. Yeah, most people, including people who are, you know, advocates of gun violence. That may be a little, not gun violence, but gun possession as, you know, what is so important to me, right? But it's a good question to ask, what are people afraid of? And I think there's a, there is a strong correlation between uh, gun ownership and whether people have been in the military. A lot of veterans and, um, a large number of them have multiple guns. I think the average number of guns, I think for veterans, is eight that they have. And of course, there's a high level of uh, veteran suicide as well. So, yeah, please. Okay. This conversation is reminding me of that book I mentioned last week, and now I've almost finished it. Yeah. <clears throat> called Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. And um, ha my lens has changed completely yeah. <laughs> from reading this book. And it really explains a lot about those of us on the left and those of us on the right and why we're so intense the way we are. Yeah. And so I think one of the one of the points that he makes is that liberals and he is, he is one, <laughs> he admits, um, tend to think that facts are going to change things. Yeah. 
but he makes the case for um, that there are six foundations in reality. Yeah. People on the left tend to rely heavily on two of them. Yeah. People on the right rely heavily on all six. But some of the things like um, liberty <laughs> is huge for them. So I guess what I'm saying without getting into all of that is that on the surface, yeah. it looks as though, well, yeah, you look at how the Second Amendment came about, it's a no-brainer. But it's all tied so much to people's foundational ideas of morality and their social their social group is so important. Yeah. And how actually all of that has changed some of our DNA over thousands and thousands of years. So it's very complex. Yeah, complex in some ways and in other ways simple. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. But I think I think there are a lot in what you said. That uh, one thing is is that um, they're you know, between people with different lenses. They're not necessarily common facts. Right. And some people bec some people can't see certain so-called facts because they can't coexist with their lens. Right. He talks about yeah. blindness. There's yeah. Certainty and blindness. On yeah, that, that uh, some people would think that uh, some of what I gave, for example, I just made up, yeah. or it's not really true. So, so there, there are issues, you know, and that's why you know uh, one of the ways that we work, you know, we, we can work with this in a number of different ways. Some of them meditative, some more reflective. One way is to just really get familiar with our own lens, because our own lens will lead us to see, to not be able to see certain things. And it's not that we need to get rid of our lens, but it's just to be clear what it is, and to have the capacity to be in dialogue with people with other lenses, so to speak. You know, like, I remember when, when I was uh, teaching, I taught for four years at the University of Kentucky. I sometimes tell stories from that. And I taught, uh, I taught a course actually, on, I taught courses on ethics. And I taught in the philosophy department, and I taught ethics courses. And we would have discussions, and I tried to establish a framework of people respecting other people's views and being interested in them, which worked. There were people there who were fundamentalists, but they were willing to listen to the others and be respectful, which of course doesn't happen so often in public. And we, we had a great time. People would hear their, the other views and lens and hear it with some empathy and some connection. And that, that, that changes everything, right? That if, if one can do that. So we want to, we don't necessarily want to give up our lens, right? We, we, it's a normal part of the human mind, but it's helpful to see it and know the limitations, to see where it makes us, uh, makes it hard for us to see certain things, makes it, where their tendencies to be attached to the view. That's what we want to track in our daily lives, you know, like in the next week. Where do I get attached to my view so I can't listen to the other? So it's not so much we get rid of our views or lenses, but we see where we get tight with them and, and stuck with them. And we, we try to study that closely. Yeah, maybe last one from, uh, did you both have one? Okay. Okay, so Peter, maybe last one. 
apropos <clears throat> what you just said, you know, I've hardened on this some time ago when I, from a Buddhist perspective, the first precept in all of the traditions is to affirm life and not kill. Right. And guns exist for one purpose. Right. They don't exist for any other purpose except to kill living beings, whether it's an animal right. or a human being. Or to, or to threaten killing. Yeah. Well, you know, that you yeah. not threaten. You can threaten a lot of ways, but this yeah. is yeah. the yeah. ultimate thing. Because it kills. Right. And so I have a hard time uh, getting beyond that. I'm just throwing it out. But what I really wanted to ask was uh, yeah. the five things you said individual, collective, impermanence. What are the other two? Let's see. Um, we, don't see uh, we don't see impermanence clearly. The fourth is, it's related. We tend to see, uh, we tend to see individual things as if they are separate and solid, things and other selves as if they are separate and solid when in reality there's interdependence. And the fifth was that we, these are, these are somewhat interrelated, that we tend to see uh, ourselves as separate from everyone else and everything. We have a basic subject-object duality. And uh, in actuality there is more, again, um, lack of duality. So those are the, again, we're starting with, thing, with uh, ways that things uh, are not as they appear in ways which are easier to get at. They're a little more gross, looking at how we see things through a personal lens, how we see it through the collective lens. That's not hard to see, right? On the other hand, it's very important, and it's actually very related. The more that we see on this gross level, how we see through these lenses, the better we're able to go into the more subtle realms, and particularly in meditation. The more we can work and see through the, the more gross level distortions, the easier it is for the mechanisms of um, our meditative awareness to be increasingly um, purified, we might say. To, to be less bound by the um, reactivity, aversion, wanting, seeing through the lens. And, but we keep on tracking that. So that's, that's really our ongoing practice. You know, People keep doing that for a long time. So, so we have our practice. How many of you would like to uh, take this on just to look at it, work with it in the next week? Great. And come back and set your intention now for the next week. Maybe even saying, how am I going to remind myself to remember? Maybe set the intention, maybe once or twice a day that you'll look in this way. Maybe have a little notebook where you write, where you write your notes. watch the news or read the newspapers, look at it with uh, these practices in mind, with this perspective. See how it works in others as well as in yourself. If it gets to be too much, go to beauty. <laughs> okay. okay, so again, uh, again, remembering we do this not just for ourselves, but for others, ultimately all others. All beings of which we are a part.
to be continued.